Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Kelly Laps, and he'll be answering your questions on the Upper Columbia River's unmatched tailwater. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Kelly a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right-hand column of our website. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, FeedSpot, Player FM, or any of the other platforms you might be using. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the distribution platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. And uh, the content of this broadcast is copyrighted in the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Kelly Latch about the Upper Columbia River's unmatched tailwater. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Contui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength-to-weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, that's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Kelly, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. And for our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which is at askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Kelly's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. Here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show, and the question will be about something that Kelly and I talk about during the show. Uh, you submit your answer along with your name and location in the text box on our homepage, and um, if you're the first one to answer it correctly, you'll win a book from Stackpole. Uh, I've got a whole list of books that I'll send out to you. You can pick one, and, uh, and it'll be yours. So listen closely. Use your best typing skills, take some good notes, and uh, maybe you'll win a book from Stackpole. Uh, if you'd like to see what Stackpole has to offer, go to stackpolebooks.com, stackpolebooks.com. Our guest tonight is Kelly Latch. Kelly has been fly fishing and tying flies for over 45 years and guiding professionally for over 25. He grew up in Alberta learning the art of fly fishing on the bow, crow's nest, oldman, and Castle Rivers. Kelly and his wife Karen own St. Mary Angler Fly Shop in Crane Brook, British Columbia, 
and they guide the famous cutthroat waters of the East Kootenay on the Elk, St. Mary, and Bull Rivers. They also guide for the large rainbows in spring and fall on the Upper Columbia River out of Roslyn, B.C. Kelly has fished many of the major trout streams in western Canada and in the U.S. These include the San Juan River in New Mexico, the Madison, Bitterroot, Missouri Rivers in Montana, Washington's Olympic Peninsula Rivers, and Utah's Green and Provo Rivers, to name a few. His lake fishing experience is even more extensive. From the quality fishing lakes of Kootenays in the Kamloops region of B.C. to the high desert lakes of New Mexico, Arizona, and Washington State, he has fished many of them. Kelly has been a guest speaker at uh, O'Loughlin Sportsman shows for the past 23 years. His seminars on fly tying and river fishing techniques and pyramid lake fishing have won him rave reviews from both the show organizers and attendees. Each winter and spring, Kelly is a regular on the Fly Club speaking circuit. His presentations on southeast British Columbia rivers, including the Elk, St. Mary, and Upper Columbia, are very well received. Every year, he hosts groups of anglers to exotic locations in search of bonefish, trevally, and permit. Destinations include Mexico, Belize, Bahamas, and Christmas Island. His excellent technical and communication skills, along with his passion for the sport of fly fishing, have made him a recognizable and well-liked guest speaker. Kelly, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Uh, great to be here, Roger. Yeah, well, great to have you. Uh, we're getting closer and closer to fishing season here. <laughs> like yes, we're we are. talking about we? the weather. Uh, yeah, guys are yeah. wetting their lines here for sure today. Beautiful day in Colorado. Yeah, you said you had nice weather, and I had snow to start off today. So, <laughs> a little blizzard, huh? Yeah. Well, you yeah. need the water, right? You need the we water. We do. So we do. Can never complain about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, good. Well, we got lots of good questions tonight, and uh, anxious to learn about you know another incredible fishery uh, yep. that uh, I'm sure I'll want to fish after we talk tonight. So, <laughs> um, we'll, we'll have at it here. Let me. Uh, Turn you up just a bit here. Okay. Um, turn the volume up just a hair here. Okay. Um, so let's um, talk first about um, the Columbia River's a rather long river, of course. Um, tell us where it starts and you know the area that that you're uh, guiding and fishing on specifically so we can kind of get the we've got people from all over the world so I, I just want to orient them geographically to where we're, we're talking about tonight. Sure. The Columbia is uh, flows through both our countries both Canada and the United States. It's pretty well split evenly in the US and Canada. It's 700 basically a little longer than 700 miles of it are in the US and another 700 miles are in Canada. The section that I guide on is, we call it the Upper Columbia. It isn't actually, it's the Upper Columbia to you guys in the U.S., but to us it's the bottom of the Canadian portion. So it makes it a little confusing when we tell people up in Canada about it. So the best way to describe where it is, it's uh, about two hours north of Spokane, Washington. So I'm guessing most of your listeners would know where the Spokane was. Right, right. And um, and you fish from uh, really as far as the U.S. is concerned, and, and your uh, your permits and so forth starts at the border yep. of Canada, right? Yep. Yeah, we obviously can't guide in the United States, but uh, we guide on the. There's about 25 miles of tailwater that we actually guide on on the Upper Columbia for us. From that point, from the border up, 
basically. Yeah, from from the U.S. border up to Castlegar, British Columbia. And there's a dam okay. up there called Hugh Keenly Side Dam. Okay, and that's where it all starts. Okay. Yeah, Good. that's like that's like all great tailwaters. You know, it, they all have their their stories. But uh, the Columbia is an interesting story. It really is. Yeah, the um, I hear that when you get down to the border, you wave to the U.S. guys on the other side, right? That yeah, true? that's about all you. That's about all you want to do to TSA officers. <laughs> it's about waving to them. You certainly don't want to be crossing the border. <laughs> do they monitor the the river right there? Oh uh, yeah. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> You're not. Okay. Nobody's going to cross that border anytime soon. No. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You can drive across. You can you can drive at that border crossing and go across by land, but you you cannot boat across. We used to be able to, uh, probably about 15 years ago, we could, but not now. Uh, not now, no. Everybody's tightening everything up. Um, yeah, the, uh, so you've got, that Columbia River is dammed a bunch of times on its way to the ocean, right? So it's, it is. Um, if, if you look at the history of the Columbia, it's, it's probably, generally speaking, it's a pretty sordid history. It is was one of the first big major projects in the United States in 1936. Grand Coulee Dam was put in. But it, you got to remember at the time when Coulee was put in, you know, the U.S. hadn't gone into the war yet, but there was, we had just right in the tail end of the late Depression, and it was, it was a very tough time. And that was one of the reasons why the Grand Coulee was put in was because of that. You can look up more on the history of Grand Coulee, but it ultimately led to the to the way the Columbia is now. The sad part, I guess, is the when Grand Coulee got put in, it blocked two million salmon and steelhead from traveling to Canada. And that's kind yeah. of the sad part of it all. They used to run all the way up to where you are. You bet. We used to have a run of uh, 1936. That year, my grandfather was working in trail, and he caught a 42-pound Chinook right down where I fish to this very day sometimes. Oh, it's pretty wow. fascinating to think it's pretty fascinating to think about that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it truly is. Yeah. How many dams are between the ocean and you, do you know? Uh, I believe there are 9 or 10. Mm -hmm. I believe somewhere oh. in there could be 12. It's a lot. Yeah, it's they're not going anywhere anytime soon, that's for sure. Well, yeah. and you got to remember why they're being used, too. You know, I, we all hate dams, but the truth of the matter is some of that water is, was designed specifically for water storage, and some of the, the best fruit-growing regions in all of Washington State, which has become, and wine-growing regions in the desert region of Washington State, is because of Grand Coulee Dam. And so... It changed that entire area of the country for the United States, and it, it's dramatically changed everything for Washington as well, too. So uh, there are some yeah. good sides of that as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't want to mess up the wine uh, grape growing. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> we, well, we now we'd mess up going. a right. Now we'd mess a t great tailwater up. So yeah. So yeah. the story of the the story of the Columbia is actually pretty fascinating. Ultimately. The rainbows that we fish for on the Columbia are a blend mix of both have steelhead lineage in them, and they also have native rainbow in them, very much like the John Day or the Deschutes River in Oregon has, which is a Columbia hmm. tribu tributary as well. So, yeah, because yeah. I guess when they did put in the dams, there were probably some steelhead uh, 
caught up above the dams, right? So yeah, they estimate with they estimate when the last coffer dam went in in 1939. I did a, quite a bit of research over this over the years, and the last coffer dam, that's the last portion of the dam in Cooley when it went in, didn't go in till 1939. So it didn't actually close off the flow of fish until exactly in the late fall of 1939. What happened then was it was estimates are there were no real records on this. But estimates are they that somewhere between 30 and 100,000 steelhead had made it up at that time. So the, the numbers were quite staggering, quite frankly. And um, all those fish went up and spawned that fiscal year, I'm sure. And then they came back. But, you know, steelhead are an interesting species. If they, if they get blocked from passage down and below, they are still trout. So they tend to... They just go back to their trouty nature, right? And they'll start eating again in the whole business. But the uh, fry from those fish obviously started breeding with the, the actual native rainbows that were in the system already. And so mm -hmm. to this day, we still have that. Now, arguably, and the jury's still out on that, on that biology. There really hasn't been a huge study done on actually their genome and their DNA. But it would be a great, fascinating study to do that. If they did, they'd more than likely discover that we have a mix of both steelhead and rainbows in there. And there, uh, that could account heavily for the size of the fish, the average size, and the power. They're incredibly yeah. strong. So was uh, originally, were there, um, I mean, the steelhead were native and, and wild to begin with? Yep. I mean, there was yeah, the absolutely. So. Yeah. And the rainbows as well. Um, yeah, that and that's a, that's a common okay. that's a common occurrence on many on other rivers too. Like I mentioned, the Deschutes River, the Deschutes has um, native red band rainbows, and the Columbia River rainbows that we have are the same species, basically. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. Now, are the do you have any browns there? Any other types of trout? No, there has never been an introduction. There's been introductions of other species from the United States. Canada has a pretty strict policy of anything that's got flowing water in it. They don't, we don't, particularly British Columbia. British Columbia's got a real strict policy of not stocking flowing water. And that's one of the reasons why our steelhead populations in some rivers on the coast are still good and one of the reasons why the Columbia is still so good. Mm -hmm. um, we did get a question from uh, Matt Pagazzi in Colorado. He was asking about bull trout. So no bull right. trout up there. No, he's, he's referring to Fernie where I'm actually, I'm really close to Fernie. I'm calling you from there right now. Uh, we, our fly shop is actually situated in Cranbrook, British Columbia. And our guiding business, we, are, we have two locations. We guide in the summer months. We guide here on, on the Elk, the St. Mary, and uh, the Bull Rivers. Uh, of southeastern BC, and then three hours to the west is the Upper Columbia drainage, and we guide there uh, April, May, and June, and September, October, and November. You skip the summer. Yeah, and it's I mean, it's yeah. the only reason I really skip the summer is is because I'm guiding so much. I have so many guides who work for me over here in Cranbrook. I really don't have time to go back and spend that much time over on the Columbia at that point. <laughs> I used to. I used oh, to. Well, I guess that's a good problem to have. Is, uh, well, it's, it's, yeah, it is a good problem I mean, to have. But, yeah. 
you, you know, you got a lot of business happening there. So yeah. Yeah. The well, it's a testament to the fishing. Our region of southeastern BC is is has arguably some pretty phenomenal fishing. So it's it's a testament to the water. It always is. If you talk to any guide, he'll tell you that no matter how good you are, you're only as good as your fish. So if if you don't have many fish or you, you have a lot of small fish or you, you know, you pretty much are only as good as the, what your fish are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Camillo in Westford, uh, Massachusetts wrote in, he says, is there a specific fishing season on the Upper Columbia and what is the most popular time of year to, to visit? So I guess based upon what you just said, those are probably the two the best seasons, right? Can you yeah, those are uh, April, again. May, and June. Uh, the summer months are absolutely fantastic fishing. The the Columbia gets a really fascinating hatch. It gets a usually starts about June, somewhere between June 5th and June 10th. There's an absolutely staggering caddis hatch that begins, and it goes right until about the third week in September. Uh, there's three different species of caddis that come off. Um, the hatches are unlike anything I think anybody has ever seen. They're bordering on staggering. It's not uncommon that there's a bridge called the Castlegar Bridge that crosses the river up by Castlegar, BC. In the evenings of any time in July and August, there's trucks will get stuck on the road because there's so many caddish shucks laying on the roads that they, they can't travel. They can't travel. The, the, everything between the radiators get plugged all of the tractor tires, they got no traction because there's so many dead caddis <laughs> in the water. Yeah, it's staggering. Oh it really is. So that big hatch is one of the reasons why the, also why the Columbia River fish tend to get very, very large. And so an average fish in our water is a small fish is going to be 16 to 17 inches, and a big one will go over uh, close to 30 inches. So Nice, nice. Yeah. 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 So the fishing in July and August is just fine. It's just you're not guiding there at that point. Yeah, and it's also the only other thing that's weird about it in the summer months is um, the Columbia actually sits at a very low elevation. Most people think of the mountains of British Columbia. <laughs> Everything's pretty high. But actually the truth is the mountains around the Columbia are very, very are pretty high. But the actual river valley it sits at between about 1,350 feet above sea level and finishes going into the U.S. at about 1,220. So it, uh, it's pretty low elevation, and because of that, they have it's exceedingly warm in the summer months. Not uncommon for Trail BC to see temperatures of 110 to 115 degrees. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, it's quite thought. staggering, actually. Most people don't know that, but it's a it's pretty fascinating ecosystem. So, you know, we haven't really talked about the water itself, but is the, mm -hmm. is the river uh, get too warm to fish? I mean, to uh, be conscious of, you know, the health of the fish and so forth? Or Yeah, well, no. Deep river? The they, in a nutshell, no. It really hasn't affected the fish, and for a couple reasons. Okay. Biggest, probably the biggest one is is that it is a tailwater. So the dam that actually controls the flow going into the Columbia is called Hukimi Side Dam. And it was in, uh, for many, many years, it went in, it was built in 1959. Up until about 1996, it started in 1996, they, it was just a water storage facility. And they poured water over the top 
which brought water into the Columbia. And at that point, in the, through all those years, yes, the summer temperatures on the top surface of the water would exceed, could exceed 75 to 80 degrees. Um, but the deeper, the river has a very high mean flow. Its average flow is at a slow level of about five miles an hour to a max of about 12 to 14 miles an hour. So it's, it's very fast for, for such a massive water body. So you have to remember the Columbia's average mean flow through its whole cycle, it usually has a low of about 36,000 cubic feet per second to a normal max of about 133 to 138,000 cubic feet per second. Wow, that's a lot so of get, water. To, to give your listeners a, an idea of that, the Missouri River at uh, Craig, at its worst, highest level, will reach maybe a max of 10,000 CFS. So yeah, that yeah, massive piece of water. Yeah, yeah, I know. You know, from running the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, um, you know, when they let loose, um, I mean, average is you know, um, five to ten thousand, uh, yep. and when it's really big, it's thirty to forty. Uh, but not nearly as wet as what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're pretty comfortable. When we're fishing it in June, the water heights usually is about 125,000 CFS. And it's, yeah. it's pretty, it's, it's probably one of the more fascinating pieces of water to fish on, mostly because of its pure size. It's just that staggering. But it's, rainbows are equally that much more fun. They have all that water. They also have a lot of water to work with, and so... The eddies are moving very quickly, so the fish have a lot of, when you give big trout a lot of water to work with, and they have a lot of power. They can make, give you a, a lot of problems. What's the average width of the river in that section? Uh, probably the average width across for the section that we fish is probably between 100 yards and 200 yards. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're going to it's, talk about how to find the fish in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's pretty. That's also pretty fascinating. It, it's um, yeah. It adds an average. Probably the average mean depth is around anywhere from ten to fifteen feet in the middle. But it has these massive, what I call I call them reverse waterfalls. But they're actually just giant holes in the river, and most of the eddies that you fish in are these big holes, and they vary in depth from. A shallow one will be 30 feet, and a really deep one, there's basically about three of those that are all going to be between 80 and 120 feet deep. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Now, do you have gravel bars and weightable areas? Yeah, it's well, got absolutely yeah. one of the sections that we fish is around the little community of Janelle. That's between Castlegar, B.C. and Trail. And that's kind of the halfway mark on the river. And it actually has some of the uh, three or four just absolutely beautiful bars, gravel bars to fish. And it's, uh, it can be remarkably good fishing at all times during the year. You'll okay. see guys down there in the evenings and the summer months just watching feeding cat, fish feeding along the bank edges. And they're pretty pickable, you know. Yeah. Now, uh, to finish up with the, the seasons, uh, so... Uh, April, May, June, you're there guiding. Uh, July, August, good time to go, but you won't be there. And then September, uh, what, September, October, do you go into November? Or is that getting too I late? do. September, October, okay. and number. I call that, that's my spay month. That's when I, I see an awful lot of spay clients at that time. Guys who are throwing spay rods, mm -hmm. casting spay rods. Yeah, 
Sure. So it's a good river. Yeah. It's it's so big that it really lends itself to the bigger stick. Although yeah. single handing, using a single hander out of the boat is still probably the most effective tool for catching numbers of fish. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. Well, we'll come back and chat more about this in a minute. Um, uh, but give me a, a, just 30 seconds, and uh, we'll be right back. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on tongas, and are well versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Kelly Latch about the Upper Columbia River's unmatched tailwater. Uh, if you'd like to ask Kelly a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on our show tonight. I keep messing up on uh, Columbia, Kelly. I keep wanting to say Colorado. That's <laughs> okay. That's a Colorado was... thing, Roger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the last show I did was, was on the Colorado. So, you know, and, uh, yeah, being local, we talk a lot about that. So, um, yeah, yep. I've, I'll have to pay more attention. Another beautiful river. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so what's going on in your fly fishing world? Tell us about your business up there and, you know, what else is yeah. going on in your speaking and so forth. Yeah, my, my wife and I own the St. Mary Angler Fly Shop in Cranbrook, B.C., and right now that's where I am, and we're in the shop. And like all fly shops, it's an extremely busy time of the year. March is coming, and and uh, we're in March, and uh, this is when all the, the uh, lake fishing starts. All the lakes are beginning to ice out, although we did have a snowstorm this morning. Um, and they'll be clear, and we have a very good lake season up here, usually April and May. But I head over to Columbia usually about the first week in April. I have first clients I have are then. And uh, we run the shop all year. We do hosted trips to both the Bahamas and Christmas Island. Christmas Island is our main destination. We've been doing that now for this will be my 10th season at Christmas Island. So it's quite good and quite fun. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. Mm, okay. And uh, you were at uh, the fly fishing show in Denver this year, right? Yeah, I was lucky enough to come with uh, Fishing BC, it's called. And it's a, it's a British Columbia initiative uh, put together by our guides association, the BCFROA. And they, are, uh, they basically have helped put together a, a pretty, if your listeners get a chance, jump on the Internet and check out Fishing BC and check out all the new videos that are available of fishing in all over the province of British Columbia. It's absolutely, really astounding. Great, great video footage, too, as well. We're on there twice, so that's my, I'm plugging my own video stuff, but I'm doing it kind of okay. sneakily. Okay? All right. And what, what again, was your, um, your website address? Uh, website for the shop is the St. Mary Angler, so it's S-T-M-A-R-Y-A-N-G-L-E-R.com. Okay. It's our okay, website. Great. You can jump on that, but, yeah, 
You bet. Okay. That's where they'll find you. All right. Mm -hmm. um, so back to um, back to the Columbia here. Uh, Scott mm -hmm. Nelson in Portland, Oregon, wrote in. He says, uh, "Is is the fall with streamers a good time to go?" Yeah, it's a fantastic time. Really is. The fish move as the water levels. The Columbia is a fascinating river in that as the water level changes. So what they've done over the years, they actually try to mimic the actual runoff cycle that would take place in the spring by holding water back going into March. Uh, like right now, the Columbia is sitting at 36,000 cubic feet per second. I just checked. And what they'll do is they're going to hold it at about that level. They might go a little bit lower. And then through the months of April, it'll come up probably about two to 4,000 cubic feet per second, very little. That's actually remarkably small for the Columbia. And by May 1st, though, that's where they'll really start ramping it up. And the water levels will increase. At every ramp up on the Columbia, it changes where the fish live and in what back eddies they live and in what runs they live in. And that's, that is, in the nutshell, probably the most complex part of the river, is that because of its size, the fish live in different locations based on the height of the water and as it increases as in a tailwater. So it's, it's, um, it makes it a little more challenging for a regular angler. It really does. Okay. And uh, going back to Camilla's question about the most popular time of year, what is the most popular time up there, do you think? Well, if you talk to local anglers, they'll tell you the best time to fish the river is in the summer. That's because the rainbows are more visible, and you see them on the surface more, feeding on caddis pupa. But in some respects, they're the most difficult to catch in the summer because those hatches are so big. I don't know if many of your listeners, uh, if they're good fly guys, they know already that, you know, you get on a blanket hatch, uh, and then you may, that blanket hatch is probably one of the most difficult times to fish because you're trying to imitate or mimic fly patterns or flies that are coming off and invertebrates that are coming off that are in thousands upon thousands of them. So you have a you have a very difficult time matching them. But at the same token, you pretty much have it dialed up and know exactly what pattern they're on. So it isn't necessarily an issue of pattern and size. That's easy. It's more a fact of getting it in front of a fish and willing to eat it. That's right. really the technical difficulty, right? Yeah. Whereas yeah. in the spring months, in the months of April, May, and June, the fish are much, much, the invertebrate population, particularly caddis, are non-existent. So the fish rely heavily then on other insects, particularly stoneflies, uh, some mayflies. We actually have a gray drake that comes off that's very good. There is a caddis hatch, usually about the first and second weeks in May, that are a small black caddis. But it isn't a blanket hatch. It's a really isolated hatch. But what's really fascinating about it is it can be isolated to one eddy. You could find one eddy in maybe three miles of water that will have it, and then you'll have a bunch of fish feeding on the surface. That gets pretty interesting. <laughs> so, hmm. so there's a multitude of hatches throughout the spring months that aren't tied to the caddis generally, and so the fish are much, much more omnivorous, and they're really susceptible to streamer fishing techniques, really good nymphing techniques, not so much dry fly fishing, but definitely streamers and nymphing of all sites. And in the oh, fall, 
Yeah. It's exactly the opposite. I, sorry, Roger, I didn't mean to. No, go ahead. Off. No, go ahead. In in the fall, in September, as the water drops again from summer, it goes back to the same thing. The fish become have lost that catasatchy. Those those big catasatches usually end about the second week in September, somewhere around that time frame. And as soon as that happens. It's almost like these fish that have been gorging all summer long on these caddis. It's like taking away the, it's like taking away donuts from me. It's not a good thing to do, right? And they get really hungry, and they wanna they wanna eat. So they're really easier to catch in the months in the spring months and in the fall months. They're much much more omnivorous. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, we have had some access questions here. Scott Nelson you again, uh, Portland, Oregon. He wants to know about, is there any public bank access or is it just a float only uh, nope. situation? Ton, absolutely ridiculous amount of public access. In fact, okay. uh, in back uh, almost about, eight, it's been about six to eight years now, they built a, a mountain biking trail that basically travels from Trail British Columbia all the way to Castlegar. And you can actually ride on that trail and get into some of these beautiful back eddies and runs that almost nobody gets into. Very few people take advantage of that as well. Non-motorized, though, right? Uh, Non-motorized, yeah. yeah. And then there's all kinds. Uh, the road between the two communities travels along the banks of the river. There's just tons of... There virtually isn't a place on it that you really can't pull over and stop and walk down and go fish. Really? So in there's not a lot that, of private ranches or anything there? That no, no, it isn't like your normal, it isn't like a like typical Montana. Montana stream <laughs> that has a lot of private land around it. So yeah. it's it has communities that it goes through, it basically goes through three, and in those communities there's a ton of public access availability to the river. What What sets the Columbia apart from all the others the sheer volume is probably the most intimidating factor that most anglers come with. Most guys who fish with me for the first time are incredibly intimidated by the water for the first two to three hours in the boat. And it takes that long before they get comfortable. I don't blame them. I mean, it's a really, really big piece of water. And it, the large water tends to intimidate anglers because they think the fish, you know, where, in, where are you going to fish them, right? You don't know where to fish them. And... It, it, mm -hmm. it is. It can be a bit of a, a puzzle until you figure it out a little bit. Yeah, well, it's common, you know, when you take, uh, you know, in Colorado here, most of our rivers aren't that big, and it's pretty easy to learn where, where to fish and so forth. Uh, yeah. But then you take one of those stream fishermen and put them on a lake, and they're like, uh, 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 what am I supposed to do, you know? Yeah, they're lost. Um, yeah, and then, then you take take one down to, uh, you know, Belize, which you're familiar with, and uh, you look yeah. at the ocean and you say, oh, my God, now what do I do? You know? Yep. But there's all reason to where they are, and yep. you just need somebody that knows how it all works, and that's when a guide comes in handy real quick. Yeah, Yeah, and the yeah. one thing about the Columbia, probably the best way, if guys were thinking of traveling, particularly long distances like from Colorado and driving that long to Spokane. I mean, you can find pretty reasonable flights, but that's an awful long way to travel. If you're going specifically to the Columbia, to not really book a guide to go out with. And the only reason for that really is it's such a unique piece of water in its size that you pretty much have to have one of us explain how this river breaks down a little bit. Right. It is actually quite easy to fish from shore, 
you just have to really understand how it is different from a lot of other water that you fished before, that's all. And it is quite right. different. Yeah, yeah. The problem I would have is driving from Colorado up to the Columbia is there's so many places in between to fish. <laughs> I well, might not is. ever get there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, well, the we, only we thing did a trip this summer. This, this yeah, last ahead. September, we did a, my buddy and I did a loop trip from Colorado up through Wyoming and Montana and back down through Yellowstone and back to Colorado. And the biggest problem we had was, was trying to limit the places that we wanted to fish, you know. It was just too many, too many. It, yeah. yeah, it is. The only problem with I've found that one of the biggest concerns we hear now in our fly shop and around our area and why our clients who have been with us, a lot of us, I have many, I have a couple really good clients of mine from Colorado that have been with me almost 26 years, so mm -hmm. it's a long time. One of the reasons why they still come up and come up every year is, frankly, we still have about a tenth the density of anglers on our water. The Columbia is mm -hmm. no exception. I mean, if I see another two other boats out on the water, it's usually pretty shocking. So, we don't. Wow. There's not a lot of pressure on the Columbia. Yeah. Speaking of boats, um, we did get a question. Well, a couple. Let me let me uh, let me pick up a couple of these questions that came in on the internet. Backtracking sure. a bit, uh, Jim Dietrich okay. in uh, Warwick. Uh, he says, was the dam eventually converted to bottom release? Yes, and that okay. changed. That's a great question. What was his name? Uh, Dietrich, John Dietrich. John Dietrich? Uh, yeah, John, that was converted to a bottom draw reservoir facility in 1998. And so what happened on the Columbia, and this was really profound, is it dropped the ambient water temperature when they dredged up above the lake. They dredged a channel a mile long, 50 feet deep, in, in the Arrow Lake pouring into the dam. And then they built a, a power generation off to one side of it. And 80 to 90% of the water now comes through the turbines. That dropped ambient water temperature on the upper Columbia throughout the season by almost five degrees Fahrenheit. And that's pretty substantial. So it went from a top draw reservoir to a true bottom draw tailwater. And really what we noticed more so than anything else was the invertebrate population absolutely exploded. Like our insect population literally exploded. And it made the caddis hatches that much bigger. It made yeah. our stonefly hatches that much bigger. Everything was better from that. And it's, it's turned it into this really massive giant bug hatch and yeah, you know what that yeah. does to fish populations so our population of trout in the columbia has exploded is the only word to describe it and it's only been in the last 15 years where we've seen that massive increase in fish population okay. and and by the way I, I i misspoke it wasn't john it was jim dietrich so oh jim uh, okay dietrich. sorry jim <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. um and treg owings in uh, moscow idaho uh, wrote in on the internet yep. as well and it said to can you float and camp the, the 25 miles of water that we've been talking about? You can, but it's um, Columbia is a bit of a, an animal when it comes to running drift boats on it. You want to be really careful with it. It's if you're if you're good at a drift boat, it it isn't technical water, but it is flowing very very fast. And the back eddies, 
are absolutely monstrous is the only word to describe it. Some of the bigger back eddies that I fish in are in excess of 300 yards around. So, and the flow line and the cut edge line that, that we fish in, you never enter a Columbia River eddy at the top of an eddy ever. And the reason why is the back cut that's coming on, any of you boaters out there will know this, that if you come across the top of the cut at the very top end of an eddy, in a normal river, it's not a critical issue. It usually isn't a big deal. You do that on the Columbia River, you're going upside down because really? the, the, the hard cut line is so viciously fast and slow. So the flow coming in is coming in a lot of times on most of the eddies at 8 to 10 to maybe even 12 miles an hour, and the main edge of the eddy is going the opposite direction. So there's a directional current difference of as much as 20 miles an hour. That's enough oh to God. toss virtually any boat upside down. It almost doesn't matter what boat you're in. So you've got to be really careful entering eddies on the Columbia. You really do. And there's we get guys who bring drift boats up. You can drift boat it, no problem at all, but you have to be really aware that, you know, you, you're in a river that's this big. You can't just jump from bank to bank. So if yeah. you wanted to jump across river from one eddy down down further, you're not going to be able to be... Uh, you'll be down actually half a mile. You'll be lucky yeah. if you could get back inside, back over on half a mile. It's one of the reasons why we run jet boats. Mm-hmm. So all of all yeah. of our boats are jets, and uh, they they basically are river john boats. They look like a gigantic john boat with a big front bow on them, and uh, they're they're power drifters basically. And they're they're mine's a big one. It's an 18 footer, but I like the bigger boat. It it gives us more stability. You know, and it, it works well for the tool as a tool. Well, that was a, a question. Well, before I go on, Treg was asking about uh, camping, too. Now, are there campsites? Sure. Down the river that, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, not really general campsites, but there's free camping anywhere along it. Like, you could easily find places to camp. It's uh, starting uh, quite startlingly beautiful on much of the river. There is sections of the river that aren't beautiful, it, that is part of the history of the Upper Columbia. You have to remember that Trail Tech Cominco has a probably one of the largest ore extraction facilities in the world sitting on the banks, and it's been there in Trail for close to almost 100 years. And yeah, that's a story of the river that's another piece of the puzzle that they've, over the last, probably the last 25 years, they've dramatically cleaned up the the emissions and the water that they actually use for the Columbia and what goes back into the Columbia. And it's it's actually a really good story that they've done so well to allow the, the water to be as clean and clear as it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has not always been that way. And Gary Harris uh, from BC, he says uh, he's a British Columbian from Vancouver area, mm-hmm. and he's tried to make it out there at least once a year. He says he's got a 12-foot John boat with a 9.9 horsepower motor. Uh, could he use that boat on the river? I wouldn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wouldn't. Um, that's a little small for the girl, for the big girl. It's just uh, that there are local guys, lots of the locals, they'll do it. But, you know, it's kind of the same thing as if you go to the ocean. You know, you go to, like you were talking, Roger, earlier about Belize. You go down to Belize and kids will be taking little putt-putt boats with little tiny engines on them right out in the open ocean. 
But they've yeah. been doing that their whole lives, and they know what they're doing. Yeah. Going on the Columbia with a, nine, or a 12-foot John and a 9.9 horse engine is uh, a recipe for a disaster if you don't know the river and you don't know what the what it can handle. A 9.9 yeah. doesn't have enough power to get you up most of the eddies, up most of the, the runs. No. Yeah, and it sounds like with a, with a drift boat, you're kind of hosed on those eddies too, huh? I mean, as far as... Well, you'll be able to enter the eddies on the bottom end of. And we get guys, you know, there's... There's a couple guide, local guides in the summer that use drift boats, but they just travel around in two or three eddies all the time. They, oh, don't, they okay. don't travel the river. So they'll just, it's actually really, I don't know how to explain it. It's not what I would call, it's great fun fishing, but staying in the same location all the time would, drives me absolutely batty. So yeah. one of the reasons we got jet boats and big ones that we can row was the ability yeah. to travel any part of the river at any time we want. And there are days when, if I'm having a difficult day, I may travel 15 to 18 miles of water on a given day. So there are other days that I won't travel any more than maybe two or three miles of water. Yeah. So just depends. Yeah, and with the motor, then you can kind of decide. Um, you know, yeah. with a drift no boat, shuttle. you've got to, you, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, makes it there easy. There is no shuttle um, service on the Columbia. <laughs> there isn't? There is no shuttle service on the upper Columbia. Okay, no. so, so you got to provide your own if you're going to do something. <laughs> yeah, like if you're going to shuttle, you're either going to have yeah. to call a cab or you're going to have to convince somebody to come and pick you up or move your okay, vehicle. Okay, that's good to you. know because most places yeah. there are, so that's a good thing to know. Yeah. Um, Scott Nelson wanted to know about um, bugs, not the ones in the water, but the ones flying around your head. Deer flies, horse flies, black flies, mosquitoes. Any problems with things like that up there? A little, a little bit of mosquito, but not bad, not much, surprisingly. Okay. And it has a lot to do with the, the, the valley bottom on the Columbia is so low in elevation compared to the mountains. You just climb up the mountains just a little bit, and you'd be in bug hell. But the Columbia, because it is so warm, even in the summer month or in the spring months, it's not uncommon for me to see temperatures in May as high as uh, 80, 75 to 80 degrees. So it does happen. Average temperatures probably anywhere from 65 to 75 by May and June. Okay. So, okay. so um, the answer Don to the bug question is not many. Really. Not many. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, you think Canada, like uh, you know, north of Wisconsin, <laughs> you know, you're going to get mosquitoes up there. So. Well, that's yeah. That's. Yeah, that's going up in the northern on northern Ontario is notorious for the black fly yeah. problems and all of that. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. Uh, down in Montana, also want to know about other accommodations in the area besides campgrounds. Are there RV parks, motels? Uh, any yep. problem getting lodging around there? Uh, probably the place we use for all, virtually all of my clients. We stay up in Rossland. It's a little it's a little ski town, uh, famous in British Columbia, is, it's the home of Nancy Green, uh, which is a famous Canadian skier, uh, Olympic champion. Um, Rossland has a beautiful hotel called the Prestige Hotel. Uh, we stay there. All our clients stay there. It's a great place. There's many hotels all over the place, lots of opportunities to stay hotels. Campgrounds, there's three primary ones, and they are along the river. Probably the nicest one is a place called Beaver Creek Campground. It's a provincial park campground. And it uh, it's very nice. It doesn't handle big diesel pushers, but it'll definitely if you're just camping, want to want a tent camp, or if you'd like to 
to use trailer camping and do it that way, it's actually a wonderful place. But there is a there's a, there's two other RV campgrounds along the river, and uh, they're all pretty easy to find. Just do a Google search with RV camping Castlegar or Trail British Columbia, and you'll see them all. Okay. And what's the closest city to fly into if you're going to fly? The uh, best place to fly into would be Spokane, Washington. That's where most of our American clients fly in. Uh, the, all our Canadian clients that are flying through Canada usually fly into Trail or Castlegar. Both have regional airports you can fly directly in from okay. Vancouver okay. or Calgary. Okay. All right. Um, let me take a quick break, and um, we'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Kelly Latch about the Upper Colorado uh, Columbia River Sunmatch Bay of Water. There I go again. Um, Good work, the, Roger. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you want to uh, uh, ask Kelly a question, just go to our homepage, fill out that form, and send it in, and we'll try to get an answer. Let me check here and see what else has come in here, uh, Kelly, before we move on. Um, sure. Yeah, and you talked about, uh, somebody asked about, Ken Barr asked about the boat you used, so we covered that. Um, um, oh, and you didn't, you hadn't really talked too much about the lakes, except we mentioned it in your bio. Um, Trey going, he says, if you wanted to fish the river and lakes, where would you go for the best of both worlds? Well, that's actually, the, the upper Columbia is it's springtime fishing in April, April, May, and June coincides really nicely with the lake fishing, not only in the West Kootenays where the Columbia is, but also in the East Kootenays, which is just over the mountain pass. So it would be a similar crossing that you guys would use if you if you were going from from Denver and wanted to head up in the mountains into Silverthorne. It'd be that kind of same kind of pass you'd go okay. over, right? And uh, the fishing, lake fishing in the East Kootenays of the province of British Columbia is absolutely astoundingly good. It's kind of, it's kind of a quiet little secret in our province that the fishing over in the East Kootenays is as good as it is in the famous Okanagan region up around Kamloops and Kelowna in British Columbia. Yeah. So you could combine very easily a fishing trip to the Columbia for a few days, three or four days, and then just either you got two options. You can either head to the Okanagan, which is only three hours away, or you can head to the eastern side of the province where we are, where I am in Cranbrook here, and you could come and have, there's a myriad of fantastic lakes to fish. Good camping on several of them, too. Really good camp grounds. Okay. So. And the resident fish there? Rainbows Resident well, fish there are a mix. Uh, province has 
for any lakes that don't have lake, uh, tributaries running into them into main rivers, which are a lot of our lakes are like that, they're, they're stocked with a variety of different species of rainbow trout. No browns, though. Province doesn't like brown trout for whatever reason. They don't like them. So yeah. rainbows and, and, everywhere. And the rainbows in the Columbia are all uh, uh, wild? You don't yep. have any stock all in wild okay. Yep, okay. wild and native fish. Pretty amazing, uh, actually. Treg also wrote in, he said, uh, boat size, 15-foot raft okay for the Columbia? Yep, 15-foot yep, rafted work, no problem at all, although probably not a good tool middle of, eh, not a bad tool middle of summer. You just got to be careful, that's all. It's, it's just yeah. these cut lines on the eddies are really intimidating. So yeah. Best thing There's to do that. is for him to take a best thing to do for any of the guys that are listening if you're really interested in coming up, is let me know, and I can at least, we can talk at length on some of the stuff you have to be aware of on the Columbia, that's all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a, uh, this isn't a fishing area on the Colorado, but it's a, it's a whitewater rafting area that, uh, that I've been through, and um, there's an interesting uh, <laughs> corner on the river there where you have to miss what they call razor rock, which is a sharp razor rock that's just under the surface. So you, you know it's not sticking out, right? So you right. got to loop around. You got to get around that, which then puts you right into going into a hole. So you try to miss that hole. If you hit that hole and come out the wrong side, then you go into a big circular chamber that's called the Room of Doom, and, <laughs> and it goes up. I don't know, 100 feet up, straight up cliffs. You can't climb out of there. And if you get in there with your boat, then you have to break out of that line there. And and they've had people in there for hours trying to break out of that eddy line because it's like yeah. an eddy in a room <laughs> of cliffs. Yep. So whenever so you imagine, keep talking about that, I keep thinking yep. of that. <laughs> so an eddy like that, imagine it being 300 yards around with a cut line as hard as going at anywhere from 15 to 20 miles an hour. Yeah, I can't coming imagine. Onto the I'll line. have to come and see. It's just, <laughs> it's a little, it's a little intimidating. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Okay, so um, let's talk about, uh, you've talked about uh, a bunch of the hatches there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think you kind of answered Camilla's uh, question. He says, depending on the season, what are the hatches on the upper Columbia to focus on? Um, but that varies because of the season. I think you've pretty much covered those hatches. Well, it, it's, uh, a, it's a cross between a tailwater. The best way to just think of it is it has a, a lot of characteristics of a freestone river, but it is a tailwater. So what that means is the pattern selection and size for the Columbia will be bigger. You'll use bigger flies than normal than you would on normal tailwaters. Like don't show up to the Columbia River fish in a size 18 anything. It's a waste of time. Oh, really? Absolutely. Absolute no no waste 24 of time. midges, huh? <laughs> well, you couldn't hang on to a Columbia River fish with a 24 midge. You just not, it's not possible. And I know guys on the, on the other end are going, there's no possible way that's an issue. But that, that, that'd be like fishing for steelhead with, a, with that on the Skeena. <laughs> you, yeah. you just can't use. You, our average bug size that I use guiding is between two and a small fly will be a 14. Fly, 14 is absolutely the smallest pattern I'll fish on the Columbia. Wow. Wow. So That makes yeah. it easy for the old guys to tie them on, huh? 
Oh, it's a piece of cake. Tying, tying it on is not the problem. Keeping it on is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're losing them to fish, that's that's always okay. So um, it is. Yeah. Yeah. The um, Matt Fugasi from Colorado is asking about your most prolific hatch, and that sounded like the caddis. Is that correct? Yeah, the caddis is the most prolific. Not necessarily when I'm guiding it, but in the summer hat time, the cat the caddis hatch dominates everything, which leads to another small problem in the summer. It um, the fish become very tied to that hatch, and they become literally nocturnal. So they they won't feed during the middle parts of the day very well, but they'll feed absolutely ridiculously in the going into late afternoons, going into the evenings. And guys will be, it's not uncommon to see bank anglers working the banks at 10 and 11 o'clock at night on the Columbia. They actually get easier the darker it gets. Mm, so Interesting. Well, and you've got but to, I don't have to. Uh, I don't yeah. have to deal with that anymore. So that's yeah, good. you got long days up there too. So uh, we do, we do. In the, in June, when I usually I'm usually leaving, finishing the Columbia about June 10th. Uh, it's light out till 11 o'clock at night, bright light yeah. till 11. So yeah. you could fish right long hours, but um, the spring months uh, just easier fishing, I think, in spring and fall. Yeah. Technically, okay. it's just a little bit easier. And no winter fishing there. Yep. Guys are fishing it right now as we speak. Okay. Sure. Too big to yeah, freeze up, be, right? Uh, it never freezes. The Columbia is never frozen, but it uh, its low elevation stops that. But it's not uncommon for there the mountains around it to see, you know, as much snow as in Silverthorne or any of the Colorado high mountains. So this year, Rossland, I think, is sitting in probably about, what are they at? Uh, uh, I don't know, 10 feet? Something like that. I think they're eight to ten feet of snow this year, so the area gets a lot of snow. So, yeah. but the river is still completely fishable down in trail. Okay. There's probably not that much snow along the banks. So, what are some of your your go-to fly patterns? Uh, probably some of the easiest. Technically, the fish. If you can get a fly in front of a Columbia River fish, you pretty much got a really good shot of catching them. They eat a lot of different things, especially in the time frames that I'm there guiding them. Uh, they get real picky on the caddis hatch, though. You really have to have a good selection of emergers. Most of the caddis patterns are going to be in the colors of tan brown and uh, light or pale olive. Uh, tan seems to be one of the better patterns, almost like the Mother's Day caddis that most mm -hmm. of you guys, most of the listeners would know. Um, Probably my go-to nymph is, like many of the guides in North America, is the varying sizes and tiles of a Pat's rubber leg. Seems to work mm -hmm. exceptionally well on the Columbia. Uh, large Prince nymphs work really, really well. Um, woolly boogers of any size uh, can be as big as 2 aught. If you really want to fish big, big patterns, you can do that. Um, yeah, stay away from really tiny flies. That's probably the, the best thing I can tell you is they're pretty much a waste of time. So. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yep. Uh, what about uh, equipment? Uh, what weight rods do you suggest one bring? It, it's a bigger river than normal, and we fish a lot of uh, most of my guide rods that I fish with are uh, 10 foot sixes and 10 foot seven weights. I like 10 foot rods because the Columbia really allows for better mending if you're nymphing. Um, even a trout spay. Some of the good 11-foot, 10- and 11-foot trout spay rods are also excellent choices for the Columbia. Uh, Full-on spay rods in the spring and the fall 
I have some clients who come with 13-foot uh, nine-weight spay rods so that they can throw 150-foot casts. So. Are you using a lot of uh, sinking tip or sinking lines? Yeah, we use on any of our streamer stuff because the water is moving at such speed. We're, we're using either a lot of 24-foot, almost never use a 10-foot tip. Most of the guys, if I'm streamer fishing, we're fishing either uh, a true full sink line or we're fishing um, a streamer head, 24-foot head, uh, usually a type 6 sink, something fast, something that can get down really, really quick. Just because the flow is so quick along the bank walls, you have, you really have to you have to punch it in there, and then it has to drop quickly, or it just they won't come for it. Um, Treg Owings had written in uh, talking about uh, tips and flies for for spay. Uh, are you using the same flies that you would uh, with a single hand? Yeah, surprisingly, I have a I've developed my own. Obviously, all guides develop their own patterns, and some of them are secret, some aren't. Um, basically, uh, any of the big Pat's rubber legs work exceptionally well off of a spay rod, but a hobo spay, any of the, the standard steelhead patterns, really lightly dress, though. The Columbia fish are not fans of really gaudy, overdressed patterns in any form whatsoever. They tend to, they tend to I tend to err on side of darker colors, purples and blacks, a little bit of reds occasionally, but not very often. Most of it's purple and black and, and uh, some olive patterns. Uh, but I'm liking the, the really sparsely tied patterns or that seem to do the best. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, Treg also asked about what size leader and tippets are you, are you using? Well, on the spay rods, Absolutely nothing less than 12-pound test. They'll break everything else So on the spay rods. Uh, nymphing, the lowest we'll go is about 8-pound test. Dry fly fishing, you're really tempting fate at anything smaller than 4X. You're, really, you're tempting fate, and you're, you're not going to land a fish on a 5X tip at really? Columbia. You're just, no, <laughs> not a chance. These are strong fish, huh? <laughs> well, the, it's the water they live in. You know, yeah. they live in some pretty violent water. And the eddy line, they, you know, you you got to remember the average rainbow in the Columbia is, if you had to pin a number, it's probably 18 to 20 inches, and they are incredibly powerful for their size to the point of shocking most of my clients. First time they come, they usually are in a fair amount of shock, thinking they're they've hooked a six or seven pound fish, and they bring it in, and it's a 19 inch rainbow which is not a really big fish for the Columbia. It's a nice fish, but it's not a big fish. So, And they, yeah. they're probably they're, they're using that water volume to their advantage too, I suppose. Yeah, they, they'll run straight into the cut line. If they run straight into the cut line, you can pretty much expect you're going to the backing. There isn't much hope of you not going into the backing. And once they get you strung out a little bit like that, it's like any big fish if they get you in, in heavy water. You, you've got some real problems, you know. They they just don't, you know, and the eddies are so big. Even the runs are long enough and big enough that it's not uncommon for you to get, you know, you, you're going to be pretty close to your backing all the time. So any any yeah. fish over 20 will be into your backing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, one quick break here, and we'll come back and finish up talking a, a bit about the river some more and some strategies sure. and tactics. So hang tight, and we'll be right back. 
Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats, like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. Uh, FFI's core values remain unchanged, to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all types of fish, to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing, Internet Radio, and we're talking with Kelly Latch about the Upper Columbia River's unmatched tailwater. If you'd like to ask Kelly a question, jump in there and uh, fill out that text box on our homepage, and we'll get your question answered uh, before we end the show. Okay, Kelly, um, I head down here. We've talked about uh, different sections of the river, but uh, you had mentioned the Castle Guard Run, uh, Janelle to Murphy Creek, Mary's Run, and Fort Shepherd Flats were the ones that that you had told me about. Um, how do they? How do those different? Uh, and and the the Castle Guard Run is is from the the dam, right? I mean, just below the dam. Is that? Yep. About uh, the top section of the river is almost right in Castlegar, just outside of Castlegar. And there's an old ferry landing on the other side of the, there's a little community called uh, Thrums. And uh, it's at the Robson Thrums Ferry Landing. And that's kind of where we put in when we do the upper river. The closer you are to the dam, the colder the water is. So uh -huh. the fish live in a little bit different water as you move downriver. The further away you are from the tailwater, from the dam itself, the cooler, the warmer the water gets. And so there's um, probably four or five primary tributaries that pour in. One to speak of um, is the Kootenai River pours in to the Columbia River at Castlegar, British Columbia. And that's another major river system unto itself. And uh, that section and the water around the confluence of both of those, where those waters go, is some of the favored water for a lot of the guys locally to fish just from shore. So that's a really good piece of water there. From there, you travel through town. Much of the water down below, below the confluence of the Columbia and the Kootenai is almost better accessed by boat for about three to four miles down until you get to just outside of a community called Janelle and downriver. From Janelle, the river tends to braid and widen, and there's two or three major braids in the river there, and that really lends itself to a lot of pretty easy access fishing, and you'll see there's a boat launch there as well, if you can call it that. It's not a great one, but it is a boat launch. Uh, from the Janelle down, this is where the river has probably considered some of its greatest character. It breaks off, it does a lot of turning, makes lots of big bending corners. Its acceleration gets to really pick up speed. Um, some of the side channel fishing can just be absolutely spectacular at any time of the year when they're available. As the river gets higher, 
in the months of June and July, you lose some of those side channels. They just are underwater. And the fish then move mostly to the back eddies. And where you're going to catch fish are always are going to be in back eddies. In the spring and the fall months, when I'm primarily guiding there, we have a combination of uh, eddy fishing, fishing in the big eddies, but also fishing some of the bank walls. And that's proven to be really, really successful for us as, as guides that it's made it really, truly astounding fishing. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, further down in the U.S., or uh, on the way down to the U.S., the river actually gets shallower. Once it leaves Trail BC, it starts to flatten out a little bit and it gets wider. That's some of the widest sections of the river in excess of 200 yards across. So the river gets quite shallow and that actually makes it easier to fish. And that's the one of the campgrounds called Beaver Creek is down there. And that's a fantastic piece of water to walk and wade. We see anglers walking, local anglers walking and wade it fairly often. And a really, really lovely piece of water. And that goes all the way to the U.S. border, and we don't go any further. So, okay. <laughs> um, the, uh, so you did identify a couple of sections there. Uh, Craig was from Portland, Oregon, was asking about uh, good access for wading anglers. So I think you identified that for Craig there. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's talk more about, because Matt uh, Fugasi wrote in from Colorado, and he says, uh, you know, how, how do you manage breaking down the fishing sections on such a large river in terms of where to target fish? Are you looking for depth changes, tributaries running into the river, color changes, edges? And uh, yeah. uh, That's James probably... uh, uh, Boyce uh, was asking basically the same kind of questions of where are those fish yep. holding. Yeah, one of the things over... 27 years of guiding on the Columbia is you start to learn really quickly that every time the river changes its elevation, like its physical elevation of depth, because it's tailwater and it, it's controlled by a dam, it changes in those depths. And every, literally, every foot of change, the eddies change, and so do the runs change. So one foot of elevation change on the Columbia River is about 10,000 cubic feet per second. Just to give you a, if, as a general rule, it's about one foot. So that makes knowing the Columbia is part of the magic of understanding that river. I've given you, I think I've given most of the guys who are listening as much information as I really can give them without seeing the water. It's, mm -hmm. It changes all the time. I've, I've learned that at certain levels, the water gets to a certain level. I know that uh, there's three eddies around Janelle that are going to fish really, really well. And the run at Janelle really won't fish very well if the water, water depth's over 45,000 cubic feet. If it's under 45, the two side channels will fish really, really well. So, mm -hmm. And local anglers will know that stuff. And it's kind of the same as what it would be on a river like... Um, like you have some big tailwaters in your water too. Not as big, nothing as big as the Columbia. Nothing but like this. If you talk, <laughs> no. if you talk to many of the guides, they'll tell you the same thing. When the water gets to a certain level, well, this run along this bank fishes fantastic, and once it sure. gets to this level, the fish won't hold in that one any longer. So it's right. really a balancing act on very large rivers, to understanding how the fish live their lives. It's more about understanding how the fish live their actual life for feeding. Not so much about, you, you learn about water and how to fish water, 
But in a, as a general rule, as the water increases on the Columbia and it gets over 50,000 cubic feet per second, the fish really start moving into the back eddies to feed. And that'll start happening usually about the first week in May. It'll ramp it all the way up between May and June. It'll go from about 50,000 cubic feet per second. It'll end up at the end of the month at probably about 75 to 80,000 cubic feet per second. Then in the month of June, it'll get ramped up again. And it's, it's a slow ramp up. It isn't a, a massive jump of 8 to 10 feet and then down. It, they don't do that very often. They'll move it up and maybe make it come down a foot. There may be a foot drop occasionally because they're, they're pouring more water in out of the Kootenai than they are out of the Columbia. And when that happens, that changes the fish a little bit too. They, they tend to live in certain water based on the depth of the water. And, but honestly, truthfully, if you've got a good Pat's rubber leg pattern and you're fishing at, say, a 10-foot tip, sink tip, or, a, or sorry, a 12-foot or a 24-foot sink tip, any run on that river will probably yield you a couple fish. That's, that's how good it really is. You mentioned this, you know, you keep coming back to the eddies. Um, yeah. And I don't think I've ever interviewed anybody on any other river uh, all over Canada and, and, you know, the United States uh, that talked about eddies like you do. So tell me, you know, I'm, I'm picturing this big eddy, um, mm -hmm. huge eddy, where you could probably get ten boats inside there. <laughs> but uh, what, uh, yep. how do you fish that? How, uh, what, what techniques do you use in those? Because well, you don't really have any current moving through there, right? Oh, there's a lot of current. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the eddies on the Columbia, they're not like anything you've ever seen. This is why the river is such a fascinating piece of... It's, it's absolutely fascinating. There isn't anything... There's really nothing like it. I've, you know, after fishing a lot of tailwaters across North America... I've still not ever run into any other tailwater that fishes quite like it. In the spring months, early in the spring, particularly in April and in October, particularly in October, I'll spend more time, instead of being in an eddy, I'll fishing runs, some of these big long runs. And some of the runs along the river, when I call it a run, I mean it'll be a constant flow and its depth from shallow edge out about to 30 feet will be a depth of somewhere between 6 feet and 15 to 20 feet. But that run may be a mile and a half long. Wow. And then you can go on the other side of the river, and there'll be another one that's a mile and a half long. And in that run, there may be two or three small eddies that are only about 150 feet to 200 feet long inside of those eddies or inside those runs. And so you can stop at the bottom of those and catch the back current of the eddy, and it'll pull you back in so you're caught inside of it. And you'll fish that front corner, but actually where most of the fish in the Columbia River fish, this is really another fascinating thing about it, most of the fish in the Columbia, because of its flow, don't station up in a run like a normal trout. They actually, when the water levels go above about 50,000 cubic feet, they start all moving to feed in these giant back eddies, and the fish travel with the current. They don't station up like a normal trout does. The currents are too strong in the actual back eddy itself. You, so what we do is we try to position ourselves when we get in these big eddies. We position ourselves 
so that we're on the edge of what we call the soft uh, eye pocket. And there's almost like a, if you look at a way a hurricane builds, comes around the thing in a big round circle, there's always an eye in the middle. And most back eddies have an eye spot, even in a little river, if you found it, you could drop something in it and nothing will move there. Right. Well, the fish in the Columbia like to travel around those. They don't go into the eye very often, but they'll travel around the eddy in that close to the eye, but not in it. So we try and situate the boat so that we give our guys the best cast and they will be casting and fishing to fish that are moving in the opposite direction that you're normally used to. It actually really messes up a lot of guys. <laughs> it's not like it. It's it's really pretty bizarre. It really truly is. It's probably why I it's probably the most fascinating river I I still think is one of the most fascinating rivers I've ever fished just because of its pure volume and size. I guide in the, like I said in the in the summer months I'm guiding on normal rivers like the rivers like yeah. the Elk and the St. Mary and these these yeah. are normal flow rivers and we fish completely. We don't fish back eddies of any kind whatsoever. We'll fish the top corner of a little riffle and a run. That's all we'll call it. We won't even call it a back eddy. But on the Columbia, you pretty much have to call it an eddy because it's bigger than, you know, some of them are two blocks long. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like you pretty much have to have a guide first time around there at least uh, to just understand because it's so different. Yeah, and most um, most of our guys that come, uh, there's a group of guys from Washington State. Uh, there's a whole bunch of guys, well, not a whole bunch, but a group of four anglers that have been coming from Washington State all the time. They come every year. They have uh, big pontoon boats, and they put in at Janelle, and they float down to trail. And they do that float over and over again because they're pretty scared of going anywhere else. <laughs> they've they've <laughs> learned it. They've learned it. So that's yeah. the section that has a lot of little side channels in it. They come at yeah. that time of the year because they know that some of those side channels fish really really well, and they float down and yeah. they you know they fish their specific spots that they like and you know they'll float a basically an eight it's about an eight mile ten mile stretch it's about eight miles eight mile stretch of water, and uh, they'll have great days. You know, so uh, it's doable. Uh, I think Treg Owings is going to be up there pretty soon. He's asking a lot of questions. <laughs> is he? <laughs> he says uh, uh, he wants to know if you're using strike indicators or if are you swinging with the sinking line. We do both. We do both. Okay. We do we indicator fish, but we also swing streamers quite a bit, um, especially if I'm on a target. If if I'm trying to target bigger fish. Especially if a guy is, if a if a client's with me and he's a good caster. That's the other thing on the Columbia. It's not beginner water by any stretch of the imagination. It's just not the place. If you're a, if you can't comfortably throw 40 to 50 feet, you might as well not show up on the Columbia. It's just okay. it's that type of river. You really you need really good, you need to be a good caster. If you're a pretty decent caster, it's a great piece of water. In saying that. I've taken lots of beginner anglers out, and we've caught fish. But it's um, it definitely lends itself if you're going to be a do-it-yourselfer. It's it's not the place you bring two other buddies that have never touched a fly rod, or they yeah. touch a fly rod yeah. once a year. Now, yeah. if you came to the East Kootenays of British Columbia, on the Elk or the Saint Mary or the Bull, any of those rivers, absolutely. It's beginner okay. cutthroat water. It's probably some of the best dry fly fishing you'll ever have. But the Columbia is a is a tough animal. It's the only thing I can say. So it's a challenging piece of water. 
Um, but it is unbelievably rewarding to catch fish in the Columbia. Most yeah. most guys get addicted pretty quick. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. Well, unfortunately, we've got to wrap it up here. Uh, we've run the course, and, um, uh, boy, we covered a lot of ground. It's certainly got me interested because it just sounds so different than anything else I've ever fished. So um, I'm going to have to work my way up there and maybe skip Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana on the way. <laughs> Good <laughs> Put luck. the blinders on and just come straight up there, right? Um, yeah. But uh, stick with me. We're going to be giving away one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to uh, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Um, we're also going to be giving away a book courtesy of uh, Stackpole Books, stackpolebooks.com. So um, hang tight, and I'll be right back. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region with 2 million acres of federal lands at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit savebristolbay.org, uh, and there you'll be able to learn more about how you can get involved and help out. Again, it's savebristolbay.org. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website, please take a minute to give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that said, what do you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Now it's time to give away uh, our prizes. And the winners of our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now. But make sure you do so for our next show. Uh, you don't want to miss out on your chance at uh, winning one of these incredible prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive the prize. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Uh, you heard the spiel before for FFI. Get over there and join up if you don't win tonight. And we'll also be giving away a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, uh, courtesy of Amato Books. And uh, you want to learn more about all the books and periodicals Amato has to offer for fly fishing, go to amatobooks.com. Again, amatobooks.com. So let me do the drawings tonight for um, Fly Fishers International and uh, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So let's see. The winner for the FFI membership is going to be Philip. Erickson, Philip Erickson, and he's in Washington. So, um, uh, so maybe Eric is one that uh, uh, will benefit from that and be able to come up and visit the Columbia as well. So, Philip Erickson, congratulations! And the winner for the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal is Robert Younger. Robert Younger in Indiana. So, congratulations, Robert! Congratulations, Philip, on winning those great prizes. And now we'll give away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. Um, and again, to find out what Stackpole has to offer, go to stackpolebooks.com, stackpolebooks.com. Uh, so I've got a list of books here. And if you are the winner tonight, then I will send you that list, and you'll get to pick uh, from one of the great books that we have from Stackpole. So um, uh, let's see who was paying attention. And um, uh, OK, let me just clear my queue here. And uh, make sure there's no more questions in here. So if you want to put your answer in on the home page uh, right where you've been asking questions during the show, 
just put in your answer there along with your name and location, and then uh, then possibly you'll win a book from Stackpole. So, uh, question. Um, uh, what are the species of fish that are available in Columbia? What species of fish are available there? And we'll see what we get for an answer here. So hang tight. There's a little bit of delay here, Kelly, uh, before they actually hear what we say. And, uh, uh, and then they have to type in their answers. So we have to entertain them in the meantime. That's all right. <laughs> You're doing a good job. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, let's see what we get. Uh, um, That's a pretty easy question. It should be, but you never know. I, I, wait, my computer's going really slow here for some reason. Uh, come on. Come on. It's not them, it's the computer. Um, for some reason, it's mm -hmm. just running, the site's running really slow at the moment. Um, Must have been like you were in Belize. Steve, <laughs> 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 only once in a while, once in a while. It sounded <laughs> like you were underwater, which you could have been. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, Phil McCartney, Steelhead and Rainbow. No, that's not correct. It might have been at one time, right? Yep. Yeah, one time but, it was. Uh, not Just anymore. Rainbow. Boy, this is really, really sad here. Look how slow this is running. Oh, sorry about this. Okay, looks like we got an answer here. Ken Barr in Whitehall. Montana, uh, rainbow. Yeah, there's only one species of fish up there, the rainbow, right, Kelly? Well, there's one species of wild fish. That's the one we target all the time, and that's the yeah. one we're fishing for. But there are other species in it that guys fish. Yeah. But definitely, that's the species that we talked about. Yep, they, they got to eat other fish, right? They <laughs> do. So, yeah, I'm sure that's uh, that's why they get big and strong as well. So. Okay, Ken, uh, sent over your address and email. I've got your email here. I've got your name. I need your uh, shipping address. And then um, with your email, I'll send you that list of books, and you can pick one. So congratulations on that. And um, we are pretty much done. Kelly, I uh, appreciate you being with us tonight. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, thanks for sharing all your knowledge. And, uh, you know, all, all the information about a very unusual fishery from, from my standpoint, that's for sure. So thanks yeah, again it's for really being here. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me, Roger. That's great. Yep. Well, thank you. And, everybody, I hope you found the archive on our show. Kelly's show will be in there shortly. And uh, just, you know, search around. Search for types of fish, uh, species, uh, uh, rivers, lakes, uh, uh, states, countries, and you'll be surprised what you find in our archive. We've got over 300 shows now in the archive, so there's a, it's just a huge library of, of very good information like we had on the show tonight. Our next broadcast will be on March 25th, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and on that show I'm going to interview Captain Cody Pierce. 
And our topic for the show will be Sheep's Head on the Fly in Southwest Florida. Uh, so Cody is a professional guy who grew up in Southwest coast of Florida, and he knows the waters there better than most. His target in the winter when the waters are cool are sheep's head, also known as convict fish because of their vivid black and white stripes. Uh, sheep's have developed a reputation that rivals permit. They are hard to catch on a fly, but are super exciting because you are sight fishing to tailing fish on shallow oyster beds and can see the take. Join us to learn how Cody's techniques uh, for hooking up on these challenging fish. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.